Part 2 of Kamakura by Yone Noguchi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Temple of Silence I stepped into the desolation of the Temple of Silence, Engakuji of famous Kamakura, that completely awakened temple under the blessing of dusk. It is at evening that the temple tragically soars into the magnificence of loneliness under a chill air stirred up from the mountains and glades by the roll of the evening bell. I stepped in Engakuji at the right hour. I had journeyed from Tokyo, the hive of noise, here to read a page or two of the whole language of silence, which, far from mocking you with all sorts of crazy-shaped interrogation marks, soothes you with the song of prayer. In truth, I came here to confess how little is our human intellect. I slowly climbed the steps, and passed by many a Tachu temple, like Shore-an, Zoroku-an, dear is this name of Tortoise Temple, and others which serve as vassals to great Engakuji, and finally reached the priest hall, to learn to my no small delight the opening ceremony of dissection, or great meeting with spirit, was going to be held that night. The year for the priests of the Zen sect, to which this Engakuji belongs, is divided into four parts, each called a Ge, which is three months. And the two Ge's, running from February 15th to May 15th, and from August 15th to November 15th, called Gekan or Seikan, meaning excused from rule, are the months of freedom for the Daishu, as we call priests, while they have to strictly observe every asceticism during the other two Ge's. We call these, within the rule, or Sechu, and the most important time during the Sechus is the week of Daisetchen, which falls three times during the period from May 15th to August 15th. Now as this was the 14th of May, I was to have an opportunity to be present at the opening ceremony of the great meeting with the Spirit, which I had wished to attend for some long time. The hall was not yet lighted, as it was a little before seven o'clock, that is the time of candles lighted, when I quietly crawled into it, like a wandering breeze after the soul of Nirvana, and I was at once conducted by a young priest into the assembly chamber. I said he was a young man, but who knows whether he were not an old priest. It seemed to me that I was already led in a magic atmosphere, under whose world-old incense, what a song of exclamation, I lost all sense of time and place. Here the priests, wrapped in silence, appeared to my eyes, as if they had returned a long time ago to the great elements of nature which stand above life and death, and it is the very problem of life and death you have to solve with the Zen philosophy, if you like to call it philosophy. The chamber, although it was quite dark already, could be seen to be wider than fifty mats, and here and there I observed that the kojis or laymen were taking their own places, doubtless communing in souls with the silence which does not awe you, but to which you have to submit yourself without a challenge, with a prayer. Silence is not here a weapon, as it might happen to be in some other place. It is a gospel, whose unwritten words can be read through the virtue of self-forgetting. I was gracefully entering into a dream, which is the retreat in the world of silence, 
when a window speech are, when the priest brought into the chamber the lighted candles, announcing that the ceremony would soon begin. Right before me, a candle, whose yellow flame rose in the shape of your folded hands in prayer to the Buddhist idol, which I could observe behind the lattice door of the holy dais of the chamber. What a face of profundity, which is but mystery, and that mystery will grow at once the soul of simplicity, which is that of nature. I was told that the Buddha was nobody but the right mind, to whom the perfect assimilation with great nature is emancipation, and that you and I could be the Buddha right on the spot. It is the dignity of this Zen Buddhism to soar out from devotion, pity, love and the like. It is not a religion in your understanding, perhaps, but the highest state of mind before yourself was born, breaking the cord of the world. You have to leave your human knowledge before you may enter here, and so I did, to the best of my ability. The hangi, or wooden block, was tapped and the priests, fifty in all, slipped into the chamber from another independent house called the Meditation House, shaven-headed, black-robed spectres from the abyss of night, and they muttered the holy name, then sat down in a row by the shojis. A moment later, a grey coughing voice was heard without, and then the stepping sound of straw slippers on the pavement. I looked back and observed three bombodies, paper-shaded hand candlesticks, floating forward, and then the four figures of priests. The chief priest who lives in a house on the other side was coming, led by his attendants. The silence of the chamber was intensified when they stepped in and took their own places. The chief priest, by the name of Sokai Miyaji, sat before the Buddha idol's lattice door, he was a man of sixty, heavily built and sleepy in face, doubtless from his saturation in silence. He wore a robe of yellowish-brown colour and a large scarf of old brocade across his shoulder. He looked around and said, Hi! We, with all the priests, bent our heads upon the mat and kept them so, while the chief priest finished the reading of Shogaku Kokushi's words of warning. We have three classes of students, one who casts away every affinity with fire and studies his own self is the very best. There is one whose practice is not so particularly pure, but he loves to learn. He is in the middle class, while one who quenches his own spiritual light and delights in licking the Buddha's saliva is of the lowest. If there's one who drinks only the beauty of books, and lives by writing, we call him a shaven-headed layman, and he cannot be in even the lowest class of our students. How despicable is one who writes for writing's sake! And of course, we cannot admit one into our Buddhist circle, who spends his time dissolutely eating and sleeping too fully. The ancient worthies used to call such a one a clothes horse and a rice bag. He is not a priest at all, and cannot be allowed to step into the temple ground as a student. Indeed, even his temporary visit cannot be permitted, and of course, he cannot beg to stay here with us. Thus I say, But you must not regard me as one who lacks sympathy and love. 
and I only wish our students to find out their wrong and correct their faults, so as to become a seed and grass of Buddhism and grow. Then the chief priest told a story. Jonubon, of the Tou dynasty of China, one day was drinking under an oak tree with his friend when he fell asleep. Presently, he was told by a man dressed in black that he was sent to take him to the palace of the kingdom of Oak Tree under the king's command. Ubon and the messenger rode in a carriage together and reached the gate of the kingdom where the king in white dress and red crown welcomed Ubon and he was told by the king that he had to marry his daughter who was lovely as a fairy. One hundred musicians played music and ten thousand candles were lighted when Ubon was conducted to the wedding hall. They married and were happy, and they soon became father and mother of many children. There's nothing like days which run so speedily. Ubon was appointed king of the kingdom of Peach Blossom, whither he took his wife and a thousand servants with him, and the story says that he stayed there some twenty years though Ubon thought it was only yesterday that he reached the kingdom of Peach Blossom. Then he was summoned back to the kingdom of Oak Tree and asked to take of the office of his father-in-law, and about that time his wife died. With the song of grief and tears he buried her, and after that Ubon began to think of his old home, his love for which he could not forget. The old king consented to his return home, One day he sent him out with the same carriage which he rode in such a long time ago, along the same road he travelled before when he first came to the kingdom. In truth, his dream was ended, and there he thought that the sight of the gate of the kingdom was behind a cloud. He looked around and saw the boys sweeping the ground by the oak tree. Ubon explored with his friend the big hollow of the oak tree whence a thousand ants swarmed, and among them was one biggest ant, reddish-headed with white wings. He looked, apparently, to be the king of the ants. It reminded Ubon of the old king in his dream, and also he observed a little heap of clay, which was the crude shape of the grave of his dead wife of his dream. He thought it strange and even ghastly. That night it rained hard, When he visited the tree again next morning, all the ants, he found, were gone away somewhere. Now which was the dream and which was the reality? the chief priest asked. There is no dream which is not born from the bosom of reality, and we have no reality which does not sing of dream. You might call our life a dream, if you will, and there is no harm either to think of it as a reality, but the main point is, that you have to soar out from the dream and the reality of life, and, let me say, from life itself. You must not be fettered by life, and death is nothing but another phase of nature, and we hear another harmony of beauty and music in it as in life. Let the pine tree be green and the roses red. We have to observe the mystery of every existence, human or non-human, which do not challenge but submit to one another and complete the truth of the universe. And to connect mystery with our Zen religion does no justice. There is no mystery whatever in the world, and truth which may appear to an unclear mind to be a secret 
is simplicity itself, which is the soul of nature and Buddha. To attain to the state of Buddha, through the virtue of meditation, whose word is silence, is our salvation. The language of silence cannot be understood by the way of reason, but through the force of impulse, which is abstraction. Shakyamuni, it is said, picked a flower which he showed to all the priests who gathered at Rezan Kaijo. All of them were silent, but Kaio Sonja smiled. That smile is the truth of self-possession and deliverance. We long for it. All the priests stood and read the Dharani of great mercy and ended with their vows of consecration. We vow to save all unlimited mankind. We vow to cut down all the exhaustless lusts. We vow to learn all the boundless laws. We vow to complete all the peerless understanding. Then the tea was poured in our cups. Some parched rice, slightly sugared, was divided on pieces of paper which we carried. It is the temple's rule not to trouble another's hand. We drank the tea and bit the rice when the chief priest rose and departed in silence, accompanied by his three attendant priests as before. And when their steps became inaudible in the silence of night, and their bombaries disappeared in the bosom of darkness, all the priests rose and retired into their meditation house, and I, into the guest room next to the assembly chamber, conducted by one of the fuzuis, or under-secretaries of this priest hall, who left with me a piece of written paper. Rising, two o'clock a.m., prayer, three o'clock, breakfast, four o'clock, offering to the Buddha, eight o'clock, prayer, nine o'clock, dinner, ten o'clock, bell struck, eleven o'clock, lecture, one o'clock p.m., prayer, half past two o'clock, supper, four o'clock, evening bell struck, twenty minutes past six o'clock, Prayer, seven o'clock, sleep, nine o'clock. The room in which I found myself had all the desolation of the senses, which scorns the flame of enthusiasm. The subduing of enthusiasm is the first principle here, that I found in the assembly chamber. The silence I felt thickening when I thought that I had nobody, not even a priest, silent as a ghost around me. Now and then, the moaning voice of an owl searched my ear from the back mountain, and the candle burned lonesomely as my own soul. Indeed, I thought it was time to hear the very voice of my own soul. Some time ago, I heard the hangi struck, announcing the time to put the light out and go to sleep. I'm sure that there is many a priest who will meditate all night, sitting up in the darkness. The darkness for him would be the Buddha's light to lead him into the silence of conception. I tried but in vain to go to sleep, when my own soul, whatever it was, became more awakened. I read the words written on a kakimono hung at the tokonoma, Hear the voice of thy hand. It must be one of these questions of which I have heard, put by the chief priest to be answered by the student's priests, through their own understanding. Here we must find our own salvation by the power of our contemplation. What is the voice of your hand except in yourself? And again, where is the truth except in your own soul? 
To understand your own self is to understand the truth. The voice of truth is the voice of your own hand. I raised my head toward the shoji, through whose broken paper I encountered a star of profundity of silence. Silence is emancipation, I cried. I could not rise at two o'clock next morning as I wished to, and I felt ashamed to be called up by a priest to leave my bed and sit up for breakfast. When I made my presence in the assembly chamber, which was the dining room in turn, all the priests were already seated silently, and even solemnly as on the previous evening. They muttered a short prayer before they brought out their own bowls and chopsticks from under their black robes. They had their only belongings beside one or two sacred books. I with them had the severest breakfast ever I ate, which consisted only of some gruel, chiefly of barley, with rice as little as an apology, with a few slices of greens dipped in salt water. However, I enjoyed it as they did. I thought that their diet was far beyond simplicity, while I admit their pride of high thinking, and I wondered if it was asceticism to leave every human lust, and to give the way for spiritual exaltation, to fly in the air as a bird, not to walk like any other animal. It is written, I am told, in the holy book, of the dignity of poverty, which should be protected as a sacred law. Oh, to think of the luxuries of the West! Those priests will be sent out begging far and near every month. Begging is regarded as divine, while a gift, the expression of sacrifice and self-immolation. They live on charity. They do not beg for the sake of begging, but for the spirit of the Buddha's law. Then there is no begging. Meike of Toganawa, the Buddhist teacher of Yasutoki Hojo, the Hojo feudal prince, was asked to accept a great piece of land of the Tamba province for his temple expenses, and he refused with many thanks, saying that there was no greater enemy than luxury for the priests, who, under its mockery, might become dissolute from not observing every holy law. Mighty poverty, I pray unto thy dignity to protect Buddhism from spiritual ruin, he exclaimed. Such is the Zen's loftiness. I remember somebody said that he could pray better when he was hungry. I read the list of charity receiving in the office of the Fusu or chief secretary. Ten yen for the great feast, ten yen for prajna reading, eight yen for the general feasting, four yen for feasting, three yen and a half for lunch giving, three yen for gruel giving, two yen and a half for rice giving as a side food, two yen for gruel giving as a side food, seventy sen for cake giving, thirty sen for bath giving. No woman is privileged to enter the priest hall. Here the priests themselves wash, cook and sew. The four priests under the Tenzurio take upon themselves the cook's responsibility, while the Densu priests attend to cleaning the dais and idols. And there are the two priests at the Jishariyo who will serve Monjubosatsu, the holy idol enshrined in the meditation house, to whom they offer tea and bowls of rice at the proper time. Those who take care of the vegetables are called Yenju, and there are three attendant priests to the chief priest, 
and the chief secretary with his two assistants manages the whole business of the priest hall. This Engakuji, which embraces the mountainous ground of some five hundred acres, where in the olden days, when we had more devotion, more than forty small temples used to stand, though today only twenty of them survive the accidental destruction of fire or natural ruin. By the way, the priest hall belongs to Seizoku-in, one of the Tachu temples, was founded by Tokimune Hojo, the glorious hero of the Hojo feudal government, who cut off the heads of the envoys of Kublai Khan at Tatsunokuchi and then destroyed the Mughal armies on the Tsugushi seas. He was a great believer in the Zen Buddhism, from whose power he nourished his wonderful spirit of conviction and bravery, which triumphed in Japan's first battle with the foreign invasion some six hundred years ago. And it was to the Chinese priest called Sogen Zenji, whom he invited here to this Engakuji, that he made his students' obeisance. Indeed, here, where I walk in silence under the rain of the twittering of birds from the temple eaves, through the sentinel straight cedar trees, is the very place. Here he exchanged confidence and faith with mountains and stars. He must have been sitting too in the meditation house, as those fifty priests whom we see today. In truth, Sazen, or sitting in abstraction, is the way to concentrate and intensify your mind, which will never be alarmed, even when facing thunder and mountains falling right before your eyes. You have to bend your right leg and set it in the crotch of your left leg, which too must be put on your right leg. Then the back of your right hand shall be placed on the left leg, and the back of your left hand within your right palm, and both of your thumbs shall be raised and joined to form a circle. You must not look up nor down. Your ears and shoulders shall be balanced straight in line, and also your nose and navel. Open your eyes as usual, and breathe in and out slowly. Above all, you must find the place of imaginary existence of your soul right in your left palm. Then your mind will grow into silence as the budder upon the lotus flower. What a pure silence of the flower, swimming on the peace of the universe, not encroached by the sense of life and death. You and nature being perfectly united. Silence is the force of nature. It is the true state in which to perfect one's existence. It is non-action, which does not mean inactivity. It is the full swing of active actionlessness. It is the very completion of one's health and spirit. Our forefathers of the fighting age regarded it as a matter of great pride to die right before their master's horse in battle. They thought, as one saying goes, that to die was to return home, and life for them was a temporary lodge itself, which should not be taken seriously. They respected frugality as a virtue. They did not think that speech was a proper defence, and settled themselves in the language of silence. The Temple of Silence, such as Engakuji and others, was for them an indispensable sanctum of spiritual education. Here at Kamakura, they found their own sanctuaries. Engakuji was burned down three or four times by the warrior's fire, all except a little temple called Shariden, beside the meditation house, when some particles of Buddha's bones, 
some part of his jaw, as it is said, are enshrined. I believe that even the boorish hearts of warriors were mellowed under the Buddha's halo. It is a small affair of thirty-six foot square, crowned with a thatched roof. As perfect harmony with nature, not only spiritually but also materially, is the keynote of Zen Buddhism, the soft, dark brown, aged colour of thatch was preferred. The colour itself is that of contentment and submission. The small shari then is now under the government's protection as a model structure, though it is small, of the Zen sect temples of the Kamakura period, which followed the source style of China. The second gate of the temple ground, that enormity of structure of two stories, carrying all the weariness and silence of ages in colour, is a giant of surprise, which, however, does not awe strike you unnecessarily. But the magnificent aspect of its settled power will make you really wonder whether there may not be a certain power of spirit burning under its ashen surface, by which it is still keeping immensity of dignity. Not only the gate, many other things of the ground seem soaring out from the grasp of ruin. I dare say they will exist indefinitely by the power of prayer and silence. Indeed, this is the ground of mystery, however the Zen Buddhism may deny it. You will learn, I am sure, that carvings, gargoyle dragons and the like are not everything, even for a Japanese temple, and what a grandeur of simplicity. Let us learn here the great simplicity of truth. A somewhat squat building of a similar character of structure with the gate tower, some fifteen ken square, one ken is six feet, will receive you after the gate, if you wish to offer your prayer. Prayer is the great shining clear treasure of your mind, signified by the tablets carved from the autograph of the Emperor Gokogen, which you see above the doors. The floor is paved with the lichen green squares of tiles, which add their tragic emphasis to the already twilight zone of the edifice. The strangely gesticulating incense is seen rising from the altar toward Shakyamuni, colossal, black-visaged, gold-robed, and with a gold crown, who is accompanied by two lonely figures of guardian bosatsus. This is the place where you can, by virtue of your prayer, forget your human speech, and rise up into the light of silence. If one could stay here till the blessed day of Miroku, the expected Messiah, whom Buddha promised us to give after the lapse of five thousand years. End of part two.